The opinions expressed in the following episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Minds of Madness podcast. Listener discretion is advised. In 2014, Ayanna Cassian left war-torn Kiev, Ukraine, and immigrated to sunny Los Angeles, California, to build a new life for herself. Shortly after arriving, she met the man of her dreams, or so she thought, a wealthy screenwriter and graphic novelist who showered her with gifts and promised her the world. What Ayanna didn't know was that this new man had a hidden and very disturbing dark side. Join me now as we take a look into the heartbreaking case of Ayanna Cassian. You'll hear how hopeful love collided with a sadistic fantasy world and how the power of forensic science brought some justice in the wake of an unthinkable tragedy. Ayanna Cassian and her sisters were raised by loving parents who worked hard to make ends meet in Ukraine. Growing up, Ayanna's mother recalls her daughter being a very happy person with a strong fighting character. She was also someone who always applied herself academically. Later, Ayanna went on to study law and eventually landed herself a job working as a prosecutor in the capital city Kiev. By the time Iana was in her late 20s, she became a tax lawyer and was doing quite well. But although she had been successful in her professional life, Iana longed for something more. She wanted a better future for herself and for the family she hoped to have of her own. In 2014, the people of Ukraine experienced political turmoil, culminating in the Ukrainian Revolution which saw protesters taking to the streets of Kiev, the president ousted, and the government overthrown. That same year, Iana applied for a student visa and immigrated to Los Angeles to study becoming a translator. According to her mother, Iana considered the United States to be a huge, strong country, a place where dreams can come true. After making the move, Iana was pleased with her new life in the U.S. and was determined to do whatever she could to be successful. While focusing on her studies, Iana decided to also take her chances pursuing a modeling career and hoped to eventually meet a wonderful man she could have a family with. The possibilities seemed endless. Ten years after settling in L.A., it appeared it could be the beginning of a fairy tale for Ayana when she met Blake Libel, a wealthy and aspiring creator of fiction novels and films. 
In 2004, Canadian-born millionaire Blake Libel immigrated to L.A. with a group of college friends who all came from wealthy families living in the Toronto area. Around the same time, Blake's older brother Cody also made the move there. In an article written for the Globe and Mail, Ronald Richards, an attorney hired to watch over the boys, was quoted saying that Blake and his older brother Cody were drawn to California because of the weather. For countless others who flock to L.A., it's the lure of being at the center of the entertainment industry. But regardless of their initial motivation, Blake and Cody both found themselves exploring different creative paths and living the American dream. After moving to L.A., Blake's older brother Cody founded the former C-Note Records while gambling in high-stakes poker games, such as the infamous poker circuit Molly's Game, featured in the Aaron Sorkin film. Following in his father's footsteps, Cody also started a real estate development and was doing quite well for himself. In fact, when he was only 23, he became the world's youngest owner of a $1.2 million Ferrari Enzo. Blake's new life, on the other hand, was fully funded by his separated parents, who purchased him a large home in Beverly Hills. Over the course of seven years, it's been reported in legal documents that both Blake's mother and father sent him a monthly allowance, eventually totaling close to $2 million. According to an article in The Hollywood Reporter, Blake began networking and pitching zany, fanciful ideas about science fiction, psychology, and murder. One friend, who worked closely with him at the time, told The Hollywood Reporter, he has these really big, cool ideas, but he could never really execute. Another friend stated that while a lot of people thought Blake was some sort of genius, others thought he was a con artist and a salesman. After plugging away for four years and trying to make a name for himself, Blake finally had a break in 2008 after he wrote and directed a low-budget high school comedy film called Bald, a story that follows the escapades of a balding college student who tries to raise money for a hair transplant. That same year, Blake was also hired on as the storyboard supervisor and creative consultant for an animated serialized version of Mel Brooks' 1987 movie, Spaceballs. In 2010, Blake was credited as the creator and executive producer of a graphic novel called Syndrome. The plot tells the story of a mad doctor's quest to test his theory that he can isolate the root of evil in the brain and fix it, trying his experiment on a serial killer. The cover art of the novel is disturbing and an eerie foreshadowing of what was to come. Blake had been eager to find investors to turn the graphic novel into a television show, but was never able to get anyone to buy into the project. In March of 2011, after dating on and off for five years, Blake married former model Amanda Braun, who was eight months pregnant with their son at the time. The newlyweds lived in a posh Beverly Hills mansion, and they seemed happy. Friends reported the couple having somewhat mismatched personalities, 
While Amanda wanted to go out and party, Blake preferred to stay at home, reading comic books or playing video games. Although Blake had some success in Hollywood, none of his projects were big moneymakers. He remained fully dependent on his wealthy parents to pay his day-to-day -day expenses. When Blake's mother died in 2011, she left him her Toronto home, a vacation condo in Florida, her art collection, and the California home he and his family were living in. But she specified that the company's shares were to be divided evenly between Blake and his brother. Blake chose not to attend his mother's funeral. One close friend of Blake told The Hollywood Reporter he couldn't handle it, frankly. His mother was the only real person in his life. Others believed there was another reason he hadn't attended. And that was because his mother's will had been changed from all her assets going to him to now his brother also. In court documents, Blake stated that it was his belief that because his brother had been raised by his father, he shouldn't be entitled to any of his mother's inheritance. A few years later, Blake challenged his mother's will in court. But in 2014, the Ontario Superior Court of Justice rejected his case. Blake had to share his mother's assets with his brother and settle for about $6 million from his mother's estate. Following the contentious court case, some of Blake's friends began to notice a change in his personality, saying he became distant and withdrawn. Then, out of the blue, in the summer of 2015, Blake left his wife Amanda while she was eight and a half months pregnant with their second child. He also stopped all contact with his friends, which some of them attributed to what they considered, quote, shame he felt over his midlife crisis. As it turned out, he'd been having an affair with Iana for a few months. However, little is known about how the two first met. Blake filed for divorce from Amanda, and she gave birth to their second son in August of 2015. 30 year old Iana was thrilled about her new relationship with Blake. She believed she'd found a wealthy, handsome American she could raise a family with. In the beginning, Ayana couldn't have asked for more. Blake treated her to expensive vacations, fancy meals out, and even bought her a Mercedes. Right away, the couple moved into a condo together on Holloway Drive, and soon after, Ayana was pregnant. She was ecstatic and called her mother Olga to tell her the exciting news. Ayana's family was thrilled for her. They knew Blake had a complicated personal life, but they trusted in him when he said he was filing for a divorce and was going to marry Ayana. Before Ayana gave birth, her mother flew to LA from Ukraine to be by her daughter's side during the birth and to help out with her recovery. As a healthcare worker back in Ukraine, Olga could offer both her love as a mother and her medical expertise once the baby was born. Blake, however, wouldn't allow Olga 
to be present in the delivery room. On May 3rd, 2016, their precious baby girl, Deanna, was born by C-section. Although overjoyed by the birth of her new granddaughter, Olga couldn't help but think it strange that Blake wanted total control over her daughter. He wanted her to do everything he wanted, she said. In the days that followed, Ayana and Blake appeared happy. According to Olga, Blake behaved lovingly towards her daughter, always kissing her and kept saying in Russian, My beloved. A photo of the parents with baby Deanna showed them cuddling and smiling at the camera. Ayana thought she finally had the family she always wanted. But everything was not as rosy as it appeared. Behind his calm demeanor, something very dark and disturbing was brewing. Within the first week of Ayana and Deanna coming home from the hospital, Olga noticed Blake acting odd. He was jealous over the attention Ayana paid to their newborn. Olga also learned from her daughter that Blake had been demanding sex, even though she was still recovering from her C-section. And when Blake didn't get what he wanted, he threatened to leave Ayana and find another woman. According to Olga, Blake would smoke copious amounts of marijuana, keeping the blinds shut tight and the air conditioning on high, even in the baby's room. Any time Ayana would raise concerns, it would end in a heated argument, with Ayana taking off to stay at her mom's apartment for a few days at a time. In an effort to save her relationship, Ayana decided to send their daughter to stay with her mother for a while so she could focus on making Blake happy. When Olga had arrived in L.A., Blake had gotten her an apartment just a short drive away. Olga was concerned that Blake's desire to control her daughter would only continue to escalate, and she pleaded with Ayana to leave him. But Ayana was eager to make things work. At the same time as Blake was arguing with Ayana about his lack of attention on him, he was also sending panicked text messages to a friend, one of the only friends he was still in contact with. In his texts, Blake outlined fears that Russian mobsters were out to get his family because he thought his brother had racked up huge gambling debts. Blake was sure that he and his family were in mortal danger. On top of that, Blake's love life was beginning to get difficult to manage. He recently left his wife Amanda and their two children and was working through divorce proceedings. He was living with Ayanna and he'd become a father of a third child. And on the side, Blake was also dating a woman he worked with, who he moved into another home. Not to mention, he was also paying for Olga's apartment. Three women was a lot for Blake to juggle, and the pressure was mounting. Things only continued to get more hectic for Blake when the woman he'd been having an affair with contacted the police just 17 days after the birth of his third child. The woman reported, that Blake had sexually assaulted her. He was then arrested and charged with felony rape. After spending a little over a half a day in jail, Ayana was there to put up the $100,000 bail. They then went home together, and Blake finally confessed his affair. 
After hearing the devastating news, Ayana packed up some of her things and left Blake, joining her mother and daughter. Only a few days later, while Olga and Ayana were out shopping for baby strollers, Blake repeatedly began sending texts to Ayana. He told her he was sorry and that he couldn't live without her. Immediately, Olga noticed that her daughter's demeanor changed. Despite her begging Ayana not to go, she told her mom, I'm going to him, and left. When Ayana didn't return the following afternoon, Olga became worried. She called her daughter's cell phone six times, but all the calls kept going to her voicemail. Filled with dread, Olga called the police. With the help of an interpreter, she reported that her daughter was missing. However, the police weren't too concerned because Ayana was an adult and could come and go as she pleased. Later that same evening, a phone call was placed from Ayana's cell phone to her sister back in Ukraine. Ayana's sister missed the call, and when she tried to call back, there was no answer. She was quick to let her mother know about the missed phone call, which only heightened her concern. The next morning, Olga took a cab over to Blake's apartment to check on her daughter. When Olga arrived, she wasn't able to get into the gated and locked apartment complex, so she stood on the other side of the street to see if she could see into Blake's third-floor apartment. Olga then saw him come to the window for a moment, and she began to scream for him to open the door. But Blake just closed the window and disappeared out of sight. A resident then came by and opened up the gate, allowing Olga entry into the building. As she rushed up to the third floor and to the entrance of the apartment, she frantically rang the doorbell while pounding on the door. She got no response. Olga then called the police again. This time, they responded by sending two officers to the apartment. They too were unsuccessful at getting Blake to answer the door. They even called and left a message, asking him to come out, saying they needed to talk to him right away. Olga pleaded with the officers to break the door down because her gut was telling her that something was terribly wrong. However, law enforcement felt they didn't have enough probable cause to break down the door and left. Olga was devastated. She didn't want to leave knowing her daughter was inside, likely needing help, but she had to get back to her granddaughter, who was in the care of one of her friends. Olga decided there wasn't anything else she could do at the moment, and with a heavy heart, went back to tend to Diana. On May 26, 2016, after a sleepless night, Olga returned back to Blake's apartment once again, intent on getting to Ayanna. While she still couldn't get in touch with her, she decided to call 911 for a second time and told the operator the police needed to come and free her daughter. What's the mother's name on the line? Olga Kasyevna. My name is Olga Kasyan. I want uh, to uh, get my daughter out of that apartment safely. I want to open the doors to break into that apartment and get my daughter out. 
been three weeks uh, since she had a C-section and she needs to, uh, she needs doctor's attention. Okay, this is what I'll do. Tell her I will send deputies to do a welfare check to see if she is there. If she's there, we'll talk to her and ask her several questions and tell her that her mother's concerned and um, because she, we haven't, or she hasn't heard from her in several days. Uh, yes, ma'am. Uh, she won't open the door. They already tried to do that, and they tried to open, they tried to knock, but he doesn't open. He won't open the door. Okay, we'll do another welfare check, and we will call her to let her know the outcome, and then we'll go from there as far as possibly doing a missing persons report. Yes, ma'am. When are you going to go there? Because your life is in danger. We're going as soon as we hang up. The authorities finally agreed. It was time to take action. When they arrived, officers told Olga to wait outside of the apartment building while they went in to do a welfare check. The police then approached Blake's apartment door, announcing themselves as members of the sheriff's department and yelling for Blake and Ayanna to come out. But there was no response. After sourcing a key from the superintendent, they finally managed to unlock the door, only to find it chained and still locked in place. They knew someone had to be inside for this type of lock to be used, so they forced their way into the apartment. Entering cautiously, officers made their way through a messy living room, searching for Blake and Ayanna and calling out their names. Soon they encountered another obstacle. The hallway door leading to the bedrooms had been barricaded and locked. After removing the door from its hinges, police pushed the furniture that had been blocking the doorway out of the way and continued down the hall to the guest room. When they looked inside, they could see blood smears and realized the gravity of the situation they had just entered. It was obvious there had been a violent struggle. Still calling out for Blake and Ayanna, the two officers continued to the master bedroom. When they tried to enter, they realized the door had been also barricaded, this time with a mattress. As they pushed on the door, Blake yelled that he wasn't coming out and that Ayanna wasn't home. The police were hesitant to barge into the room in case it caused Blake to inflict harm on Ayanna or himself. Instead, they tried to talk to him. While he was held up in the bedroom, Blake called his friend and accountant, Stephen Green, and asked him for help. Stephen raced over and tried to persuade Blake into opening up the door. Looking disheveled and only wearing boxer shorts, Blake finally came out. After only taking one look into the bedroom, officers quickly called the homicide squad and took Blake into custody. When homicide detectives William Cotter and Rob Martindale arrived, they were horrified by what they saw. Their eyes were first drawn to a large blood stain on the wall. Then, they saw Ayanna lying on a blood-stained mattress with a Mickey Mouse blanket pulled to her chin. After taking a closer look, they realized Ayana was no longer alive 
and had been the victim of significant trauma. Detective Martindale described her injuries as horrific and unspeakable. Detective Cotter said it was the most heinous crime he'd seen in his 30 years of law enforcement. Not able to wait a minute longer for news of her daughter, Ayana's mother pushed her way into the building and ran up to Blake's apartment. That's when she saw Blake being taken away in handcuffs. She screamed out at him, Where is my daughter? When police broke the heartbreaking news to Olga that her daughter had been murdered, Olga yelled out for her daughter. Not wanting to believe it was true, she tried desperately to crawl into the apartment. But she was restrained by law enforcement. When police asked Blake to explain what he'd done to Ayanna, he insisted he didn't even know she was dead. When they pointed out she was deceased in the bed, Blake coldly replied, Well, I guess you'll have to find out who did it then. When questioned further, he continued to deny he had anything to do with his girlfriend's death. Blake also couldn't offer any explanation for who would want to inflict harm on her. He told police, science is going to tell you who did this. In his arrest photos, Blake has been said to look deranged. He was wide-eyed, puffy-faced, and in a few shots was even smiling. He also had scratches and bruises on his face and a bite mark on his arm. Blake was held without bail and charged with first-degree murder of Ayanna Cassian, as well as aggravated mayhem and torture. The charges allege that Blake used a knife to torture, maim, and murder Ayanna sometime between May 23rd and May 26th. According to the California Criminal Code, aggravated mayhem occurs when a person demonstrates an extreme indifference to the physical and psychological well-being of another person and causes permanent disability or disfigurement, whereas the elements of torture include the intent to cause cruel and extreme pain and suffering for revenge, extortion, or a sadistic purpose. Wearing a sleeveless padded suicide jacket, Blake pleaded not guilty to all charges. His lawyer cautioned the court that Blake may not be mentally competent to stand trial. In response to L.A. Superior Court, Judge Keith Schwartz ordered Blake to undergo psychological evaluation. But Blake was found to be competent. The doctor determined Blake understood right from wrong, which is the legal standard for competency. So after a little more than two years behind bars, in June of 2018, the week-long trial began. Blake's fate was in the hands of a jury of eight men and four women. Both sides had supporters inside the crowded courtroom. Blake's brother was his only family member in attendance. His ex-wife Amanda made a couple of appearances, but was mainly around for the end of the trial. 
Ayana's mother Olga was in the courtroom every day for the proceedings with an interpreter by her side. A number of Ayana's other friends and family members were also in the court to show their support and to help Olga through the difficult and disturbing details of what had happened. Prosecutor District Attorney Tanis Makiev and co-counsel Deputy District Attorney Beth Silverman represented the state. The pair presented a clear-cut case that relied heavily on forensic evidence and Blake's fascination with murder to try to convince the jury of his guilt. At the trial, Los Angeles Chief Medical Examiner Jonathan Lucas stood in for Dr. James Ribe from the Los Angeles County Coroner's Office, who'd retired since performing the autopsy on Iana. The medical examiner had the difficult task of walking the jury through Dr. Ribe's detailed autopsy report, as well as numerous close-up photos of Iana's injuries. The details surrounding what Iana must have endured during her torture and murder are so barbaric and cruel it's unimaginable to think about the fear and pain she must have experienced. Ultimately, she died from blunt force trauma to the skull and exsanguination, which is a term for severe blood loss. Her body had been drained of almost all of its blood. Medical examiner Lucas told the court that at least some of the attack happened in the bathroom. The most disturbing part of the medical examiner's testimony was when he said Ayana had been alive when she was tortured and mutilated and died a very slow, excruciating, painful death. The forensic evidence indicated that she had been living for approximately eight hours after receiving the massive injury to her scalp and the bruise to her collarbone. Given the extensive bleeding from her wounds, Ayana's heart had still been beating when the injuries were inflicted. Also, she had defensive wounds on her arms and hands, which suggested she was alive for some time, trying to fight off her attacker. The pathologist noted, I've never seen this before and I doubt if hardly any forensic pathologists in this county or abroad have ever seen this outside of, perhaps, wartime, so this level of violence is extremely rare. The photos the medical examiner showed to the jury to back up his testimony was extremely difficult for everyone in the courtroom to bear, especially for Ayana's grief-stricken mother. When asked why she felt she needed to stay in the courtroom, enduring the sight of such graphic images, Olga told the media it was her duty as a mother. Olga said, I am her mom, and I must put all her pain through me. I asked them to give me those pictures, those photos. I wanted to hug and kiss each of them. For Olga, someone who loved Ayana dearly, she just had to be present to see the horrors her daughter faced and to carry some of her pain. Blake, on the other hand, refused to look at any of the photos. Instead, he sat slumped in his chair, 
with his eyes fixed on the table in front of him. Adding to the medical examiner's testimony, the prosecution also presented a barrage of forensic evidence gathered from Blake's apartment that pointed to him being the murderer. A forensic pathologist told the jury that the blood found in the apartment was Ayana's and that the DNA samples taken from the crime scene matched both Ayana and Blake. Forensic evidence linked to Ayana was also located throughout the apartment, with her blood found in the drain of the kitchen sink, along with other DNA evidence discovered in the bed, behind the mattress, and on the floor. Blake's handprint was also compared to a bloody print on the bed skirt, and it was a match. And of course, Ayana's body had been found inside Blake's apartment. The prosecutors argued Blake had been lying next to Ayana's body for hours before the police entered the apartment. While searching the premises, the investigators noticed there was a trash chute and figured Blake had probably tried to clean up the crime scene and used the chute to dispose of evidence. When they went downstairs to inspect the dumpster, they recovered 11 trash bags of what contained more DNA evidence, bloody towels, clothing, and bedding, all linked back to Ayana. Crime scene specialist Leslie Thompson explained that when she arrived on the scene, she was surprised by the lack of blood. For such a brutal crime, a significant amount of blood should have been visible to the naked eye. So Leslie applied the chemical compound Blue Star Magnum pH to the floors, walls, and other surfaces in the apartment. When applied to the master bedroom and bathroom, well, it lit up. In fact, the luminescence trail throughout the apartment confirmed that the crime had occurred over an extended period of time in multiple locations, including both bedrooms and the bathroom. Blake's defense lawyer did what little she could to poke holes in the prosecution's forensic evidence. She told the court that DNA from an unknown second male was located on the outside of three of the 11 trash bags. In her opinion, this raised reasonable doubt and suggested someone else may have been the killer. Throughout the trial, prosecutor Beth Silverman also discussed Blake's fascination with killing. She said Blake used his 2010 graphic novel Syndrome as a blueprint for the murder. The book opens with the line, If you loved hurting things, what would you do? The prosecution said, If you're Blake, you eventually are driven to act out your darkest desires. Robert Ryan one of the writers of the graphic novel told the jury that it was a collaborative project and that Blake didn't write or illustrate the lurid scenes, but he claimed that Blake had final say on editorial. He also testified that Blake approved everything within Syndrome's pages and that the blood-draining idea was all Blake's. Robert also said, Blake told us, that he had done a lot of research on serial killers. The prosecution made some solid links between the graphic novel and Ayana's murder. The cover shows the head of a baby doll 
with a massive head wound. The book also depicts two victims hanging upside down, with their blood draining from their bodies. Images from the novel further illustrate a female's lifeless body on a blood-covered mattress. Eerily, the graphic novel ends with an image of a hand dripping in blood, alongside which the narrator concludes, in the end, we all become monsters. The prosecutors did an excellent job showing that Blake's actions were indeed monstrous. Not only the brutality of the murder itself, but also his premeditation and determination. They argued that Blake had texted Diana and had lured her over to his house with the intention of murdering her. He put his passport and $4,000 in cash into the pocket of his pants, suggesting he was planning on disposing of Ayana's body and fleeing the country. Disturbingly, text message and security footage also revealed that Blake ordered takeout several times during the time he was torturing Ayana. For Prosecutor Silverman, this was evidence Blake had multiple opportunities to change his mind, but instead remained committed to his horrific crime. The prosecution wrapped up its case after six days of testimony and calling 14 witnesses to the stand. When it was the defense's turn, Blake didn't testify, and his lawyers didn't call a single witness. Instead, the defense did its best to call the prosecution's blueprint theory into question by highlighting that Blake only created the concept of the novel Syndrome and he didn't write it or illustrate it. Prosecutor Silverman asked the jury, how do you explain all this mammoth amount of evidence that all points to one person? Reasonable doubt is the standard in this case. The keyword is reasonable. Is it possible that a spaceship came down and landed inside this apartment and some Martians committed this crime? Yeah, it's possible. But is it reasonable? No. During closing arguments, the prosecution placed two photos of Ayana on the video monitor for the jury. One image captured Ayana when she was in life, a smiling brunette with large brown eyes peering up at the camera, whereas the other image showed the hardly recognizable bruised and battered face of Ayana after she'd been murdered. Ayana's mother, who had managed to watch during the entire trial, turned her head toward the wall, covered her face, and wept. Near the start of her closing statement, Prosecutor Silverman raised the question that likely had been puzzling the jury since the beginning. Why? I'm sure you've asked yourself the question of why. Why would a human being do anything close to this to a human being? And why do that to someone he supposedly loved? Someone he had just had a baby with? After conceding that motive was often hard to determine, the prosecutor suggested power, jealousy, and control were the answer. 
and resented the love Ayanna had for their baby Deanna. He was also furious that she dared to leave him, even though he'd been having an affair. Prosecutor Silverman asked the jury, what is the ultimate act of power and control? It's taking someone's life, right? Taking away everything they dreamed they were going to be. A mother, a parent, a daughter, a wife. What happened here is beyond anybody's worst nightmare. Maybe you thought, how bad can it be? We're all desensitized to the level of violence we have in our society. This seems very surreal, but yet it's real. That's the point. This is the world where the defendant lives, where people's lives have no value. Maybe he did think that no one would care that a young woman from Ukraine went missing here in the US. She was butchered and thrown away like pieces of trash. In the wake of such a horrific murder, we decided to ask clinical psychologist Christina Forzani from California her take on this gruesome case. I would generally work with individuals with severe and persistent mental illness, but also individuals who struggle with depression, anxiety, and other mental health disorders and various stages of functioning in their daily lives. I generally specialize in women with a history of abuse and trauma. I've also worked in the Los Angeles jail system treating women with a criminal and mental health history. But I currently work with a general population and I just serve the community. I don't have access to a lot of detail about Blake Lilo, and I've never met or treated him or anyone involved in the case. However, someone like him, if he were suffering from narcissistic personality disorder or even antisocial traits, which is what a sociopath suffers with. The way that he's raised in his childhood, their family, and later on their romantic relationships would certainly shape and also be impacted by their social interactions. Personality is generally hardwired in the brain. Therefore, individuals with personality disorders like narcissism are predisposed, but at the same time, those traits are solidified as an individual is raised and becomes an adult. So narcissistic traits develop throughout childhood and solidify as kind of maladaptive patterns and defenses, and those get reinforced as personality traits as they grow up. Symptoms of narcissistic personality disorder include being very superficially charming, inflated sense of self-importance, entitlement, feeling superior, even when the superiority may not be warranted and also being unable to recognize the feelings of others. So in other words, individuals with this disorder see others through kind of a veil of their own perspective rather than as separate individuals, which could kind of impact the empathy that they could have for others. So it's different from sociopaths because sociopaths would have more calculated and purposeful plans to harm others and may have more of a history of violence. Individuals with narcissism, however, may believe that others envy them. They don't experience the same consequences of their actions without narcissistic traits. Narcissists may primarily surround themselves with others who provide that constant admiration and reinforcement and devalue the perspectives of those who don't agree with and admire them. 
They might even manipulate others into admiring them or others who provide the reinforcement that they need to kind of maintain those feelings of grandiosity. So as life continues and as someone who's maybe predisposed to narcissistic traits grows up, a person afflicted with those personality traits kind of surrounds and chooses people who admire and superficially reinforce them. And that may be what somebody considers to be proof of his accomplishments, proof of his positive qualities, and keep him from having to gain the humility and insight that could help him heal from living in that ego defense. When an incident occurs that topples some of those beliefs and that proof, a crisis or even a rage may occur. For some, this could be just be depression, a relationship or job disruption. Often narcissists have difficulty functioning in their personal lives and their careers. But in the case of an individual who goes into a rage, there could be some more extreme forms of behavior like violence and abuse. I understand that Blake was separated from his father and his brother as a child. He grew up with his mother and that there were also significant financial considerations in his upbringing, continuing to impact him as an adult when his mother passed away and there were issues with her inheritance. I also understand that Blake's father was a very powerful man. He has been said to be controlling and dominating, although I don't have any personal relation to him. But those traits might have affected Blake's self-esteem and his relationships and the way that he learned to interact with other people as he grew up. Blake reportedly had a family history of bipolar disorder as well, which involved at least one manic episode, not saying that Blake had a manic episode, but reportedly a family member, his grandmother did. So a manic episode involves feelings of grandiosity, excessive energy, talkativeness, decreased need for sleep, and impulsive behaviors. And those impulsive behaviors could be acting out sexually, making unwarranted business decisions, sometimes involving the individual losing touch with reality, and even having delusions, like grandiose delusions, which, of course, if you think about it, could, in combination with narcissistic or antisocial traits, could be very dangerous. Any of this family history combined with the attachment disruption of growing up in a separated family could contribute to Blake needing constant reassurance and acceptance from others and being very sensitive to injuries, such as a romantic partner rejecting him, which is reportedly what happened when his girlfriend split up with him before the murder happened. Growing up in the shadow of so much success and money could lead to an individual's ego and self-worth being vulnerable and any sense of rejection could lead to one of those narcissistic injuries or rage or a crisis. Furthermore, Blake was able to pay others to write and illustrate his comic books. I understand that he put out a movie that went straight to DVD. These experiences in the years before his crime occurred may have made him even more vulnerable to narcissistic injury. There are several other mental health symptoms and disorders that could be considered in such a brutal act as this one, or make someone be preoccupied with that kind of brutality, such as schizotypal personality disorder or schizophrenia, but there would really need to be further exploration and direct treatment to make those connections. There's really no way to know. These are just some considerations that may help us understand why someone would do something like this.
Blake's defense wrapped up their case by stating his graphic novel syndrome was like gluten in the prosecution's case. Needless filler. His defense also called into question the long length of the attack proposed by the medical examiner, as well as the claim that Ayana had been alive when she sustained her injuries. She asked the jury why none of the neighbors reported screams coming from the apartment if it was true. Blake's lawyer also told the jury that he was not the criminal mastermind the prosecution painted him to be. She stressed he didn't even try to escape after the murder. Why wouldn't he leave, she asked. She argued only an innocent person would have remained. After deliberating for only three hours, the jury reached its verdict. Guilty on all counts. First-degree murder, torture, and aggravated mayhem. Blake showed no emotion. Olga held the hand of her volunteer translator tightly and quietly wept. When the prosecutor started to leave the courtroom, Olga approached her and hugged her for over a minute. The pair left the room together, with the prosecutor wiping tears from her eyes. Once she was in the hallway outside the courtroom, Olga threw her arms up in the air and looked skyward. She spoke directly to Ayana. She said, Where are you? I'm sorry. I'm sorry I didn't save you. I'm sorry. Olga was always haunted by the belief she could have saved her daughter if she'd somehow managed to convince the police to break into Blake's apartment during her first visit. Olga believed Ayana might very well have still been alive, but only Blake really knows the truth. The following week, on Tuesday, June 26, 2018, Blake's sentencing hearing was held. He wore a neon yellow prison jumpsuit and appeared more alert and aware of the proceedings than he had during his trial. Ayana's mother, Olga, shared an emotional victim impact statement before the judge delivered Blake's sentence. She said, There are no words to express the pain and despair in my heart. I never thought that one day my life would be broken. For two years, I've been asking God and myself why. Why did my daughter have to endure this inhumane torture and suffering? Because she wanted to laugh and to love? Because she wanted to have a baby and have a family? He took away the most precious thing that a baby could have. This monster ruined our lives, ruined the lives of his family, ruined the lives of his sons, and the life of his newborn daughter. Superior Court Judge Mark E. Wyndham sentenced Blake to life in prison without the possibility of parole. He was also given extra life sentences for the torture and aggravated mayhem convictions that the judge stayed, making sure that Blake was behind bars and could never be a free man was a simple decision for the judge. He said this case was unusual due to its savagery. 
the defendant's profound brutality and his inconceivable cruelty. Blake is serving out his life sentence in the Supermax State Prison located in Cummins Valley in Southern California. Ayana's family created a Give Forward campaign to raise enough money to bring Ayana's remains back to Ukraine for burial. The Cassian family filed a wrongful death lawsuit against Blake, and in early 2019, after a bench trial, a Los Angeles County Superior Court judge ordered Blake to pay $41.6 million. Blake never attended the trial. He didn't send a lawyer or a family member to represent him. After the verdict, a lawyer who represented the Cassian family during the civil proceedings told the media, This murder didn't just kill one person. It really did kill the family. It shattered the family. And the family has had a hard time crawling back from this. The most precious thing to take away from a little girl, from a woman, is her mother. Deanna's mother was taken away from her before she even got a real chance to learn about her. At some point, she's going to learn about the reality of her mother and what happened to her and what her biological father did to her. Sadly, the Cassian family may never receive any of the money Blake had been ordered to pay them. Although he comes from a wealthy family, Blake is personally responsible for the money owed, which no doubt far exceeds any assets he has left. Ayana's mother Olga remains hopeful that either they'll receive some of the court-ordered payment or the Libel family would help provide some financial assistance for Deanna. More than anything else, Olga dreams of raising her granddaughter in the U.S., she knows it's what Ayana would have wanted. As of now, precious three-year-old Deanna currently lives in Ukraine and is being raised by her mother's family. Olga says they're starting to pick up the pieces and trying to move forward with life, but she holds tightly to the memory of Ayana. Olga senses her daughter's presence every day, every minute. Perhaps in part because Deanna is the spitting image of her when she was a toddler. Olga says she talks about her beautiful daughter to Deanna every chance she gets, doing all a mother can do to keep the memory of her child alive.
Writing and research for this episode was by Christine Penhale. You should check out her website, The True Crime Files, for in-depth articles on missing persons and unsolved murders. We'll provide a link to her website in the show notes. I'd like to thank the following new Patreon supporters. Anka, Veronica S., Mia L., Kelly P., Catherine K., Shannon S., Diane, Christina F., and Ian P. The Minds of Madness can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, and all other podcast platforms. Ad-free episodes of this show are available on Stitcher Premium. If you would like to support this show and get some extra perks, including extra content, early release, and ad-free episodes, go to patreon.com slash madnesspod. You can find our website by going to mindsofmadnesspodcast.com. To find us on Facebook and Instagram, search The Minds of Madness. And on Twitter, using the handle at madnesspod. And finally... The closing track, Feel the Madness, is provided by The Funkors. You can find them at the record label's website by going to goldenerrorecords.com.au slash G-E. I 